The times are changing. The clocks have... Oh, no. Wait, that's just daylight savings time. Well, we're celebrating change anyway as we contrast and compare how certain games have changed over time. Join us in the Music Arcade. As a matter of fact, daylight saving times hasn't hit yet. We do have that, but it's like a couple of weeks off, which is a whole lot of mess on top of the existing mess, but it's daylight saving time, so... As I say, Fun. every six or however many months it is, damn you, Kaiser Wilhelm, for making us do this. Yep. Um... Very much looking forward to the possibility of daylight savings time no longer being a thing. That would be nice. Wouldn't it just? Thank you for joining Daylight Saving Arcade, the podcast where we complain about daylight saving times. <laughs> See y'all next six months from now? <laughs> oh boy. All right. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to Music Arcade, podcast all about games music. And the fun times and how they change. I'm Galen, the sound guy Firestone. I'm Ronico. And I'm Eddie, and I don't have daylight saving time anymore. Woo! Lucky you. I'm jealous. Me too. So yeah, uh, in light of changing times, we're talking about how soundtracks change over time. Sometimes within a single game, sometimes within a whole series. Um, yeah, I, uh, full disclosure, I did uh, have uh, this topic in mind. We have a list of uh, potential topics, and this one seemed to fit. I kept things relatively recent and topical, because if there's one thing I love, it's contrast and things that change a little and that echo strikes in the past. And if I was let while, I could make like 10 episodes in a row with just tracks that contrast on each other in different ways you do tend to be the master of our playlist with like a lot of tracks on there half of which <laughs> ends up getting excuse the is this the episode you want to bring that up is this the one that's not a bad thing you just have a lot of songs you like to talk about Come on. <laughs> I'm going to refrain from comment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I love this team. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway. Thanks to make a team. Anyway, let's see what's on the production order, what our first topic is, and oh, we're just diving right into me, huh? Cool. Arknights yes, again. Yes, we are. So... There's been some interesting movement in the Arknights uh, soundtrack over the last couple of events. That's a very diplomatic thing to say. Well, I mean, it's true. But yeah, very I'm, I'm getting into it. Of words. And these two events couldn't have more different soundtracks. Um, the first, Alive... As supposedly performed by in-universe metal band Alive Until Sunset, in reality performed by some composer I'd ever heard of and sung by Christina V, is about as generic of mall metal as you can get, while the other event going on, C.O.B.'s Fungamist, 
um, the boss theme of that is like this wild, jazzy, swing, just awesome freaking song. And that's both compared to a soundtrack that has actually largely been EDM. And I mentioned this last episode with King Mouse, which was one of our first, like, real dives into hard rock and in that soundtrack. And even that was still largely, like, synthesized. Whereas this uh, Fungamus still feels more organic and then Alive just feels like it was written by Focus Group. But they came to all the wrong conclusions. I will get into this one at length, but I kind of wanted to start with our control group, let's call it, uh, which is the Lungman Downtown, or Lungman Rooftop, whichever you prefer, battle theme, uh, plays during the Third Annihilation and in several battles during Chapter 5, I want to say, I think it was Chapter 5. Lungman Downtown Annihilation. Um, and this is just a pulse-pounding, electronic, just tense, great piece of video game music. It's just a good track. Um, compositionally, it's fairly simple. Repetition on a theme, good harmony, strong melody line, great breakdown. There isn't really anything special about it. It just sounds really good. It's 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 yeah, filler it's, in the best way. Yeah, it's Arknights.mp3. Yeah, pretty much. Like you've got tension, you've got this build-up that's. Not too hectic, but still is uh, way more uh, elaborate than uh, you'd expect from a tower defense cat girl based mobile game. Well, you say cat girl, but the vast majority of the actual like the 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 two groups that have the highest number of people other than the cat girls are the wyvern girls, and I have to emphasize that because there's also dragon girls who are a lot more rare, and then uh, rabbits. Or the other ones. Yes, oh, but, and demons. But if if I say Kimono Mimi, I sound like a weeb. Yeah, I think we talk about Japanese music enough that that ship has sailed. <laughs> um, and it's funny because I was just talking about Fungamist and my favorite unit to use in all of Fungamist is he looks like a normal dude. He's just a normal, dark-skinned, Hispanic dude. I would imagine his everyday thought is, what the hell am I doing here? Uh, you'd think that, but he is actually a local and is pretty used to dealing with the various, uh, quote-unquote, ancients in the game. This is not relevant. We can talk about this if we ever get back to gotchas. That's, that's another conversation. Um, but in terms of... The actual music, yeah. The Lungman Downtown Battle theme is basically what you expect when you kind of open up a game like Ark Knights. It's got the whole, like, modern fantasy vibe. Um, now, in-game... The sound fidelity is a bit better than you would expect from a mobile game, but the, the composition is... It's cool, but it is very much what you would expect there. Yeah. I mean, as I said, there's a reason I'm using it as the control group. I, I called it filler in the best way on purpose. It's a fine song. I Nothing really special about it, but it's cool. I like it. Um, It just sounds good. It's got a cool melody. I, again, I'm, I'm not saying it does anything special, but that wasn't the point. It's a regular stage theme. It's not trying to be. 
Whereas the next song I'm going to talk about um, is the exact opposite. This one is doing something special. It's jazz. <laughs> it's improvisational jazz in a modern fantasy tower defense mobile game. This boss theme is kind of incredible. Make sense. It's really, really great. It really is. Like, it's got Pretty the fun. horn line, and it's got piano solo, and then during the piano solo, it's got this, like, wild saxophone line that I literally only heard for the first time, like, right before this episode, because I've been listening to it on my phone speakers as opposed to my professional ones. And uh, there's a big that, difference. It, it doesn't even sound out of place for two reasons. One is that the pace is still very similar to the control group. Yep. And the other is that the event is weird, so it makes sense to translate that by putting something different. Oh, yeah. Uh, the event is called Siobis Fungamist, in which everyone's favorite Cerberus girl um, gets inadvertently high on mushrooms in the main event, Gaviel's, uh, the Great Chief Gaviel Returns. And this entire side event, the uh, roguelike event, is... Well, it's Siobi tripping balls, is what it is. She is on the drugs. <laughs> I gotta admit, as uh, the resident non-JRPG player who doesn't really touch that many Japanese games, that was a sentence. That was, wasn't it? <laughs> this event is about a Cerberus girl on drugs. Honestly, it's as good as a way to make a dream sequence as any. It's pretty good. I mean, there's a reason TV Tropes has an entire trope about this called the Mushroom Samba, and that is definitely what Siobi's on. Yep. Um, I need to read that page after the episode. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, the whole, the whole thing, when it's not using pre-existing music, which it does a lot, uh, is very jazz-tinted. Uh, the main menu is jazz-tinted, but this boss theme really kind of drives it home. It's still got that, like, pressure and intensity, but it's a lot more wild, it's a lot more freewheeling, it's a lot more improvisational, obviously, because drugs. And um, the random nature of the mode. And the random nature of the mode, yeah. Um, while still maintaining a strong melody line and a catchy hook. I really like this song. Really, really good. It reminded me of uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 where you've got the main game which has absolutely nothing jazzy about it right and then you have the standalone dlc uh torna which happens 400 years before the main game and who has uh, as many of its theme uh, jazzy versions of existing tune and a jazzy main combat theme yeah. And that's how so. they set up a different era, even though the technology hasn't changed a lot in 400 years because JRPG. Pretty much. Um, and let me just say that if your track reminds me of a Xenoblade track, that's generally a good sign. It really is. It really is. And it kind of... It honestly impressed me quite a bit the fact that this song exists especially compared to alive let's talk about this one for a second so alive is um alive is a track that doesn't work 
It's so, a thing. In game, there's this metal band that shows up from time to time, which is weird because they're actually involved in the main plot. Um, specifically the plot about the Lovecraftian horror under the sea that keeps getting referenced, but we haven't actually done anything about yet. Definitely did it better. Probably. Um, yeah. No, you know what? Yeah, wanna... Brendan Spalls is a way better composer. 100%. I don't want to listen to more Mater now. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I didn't think to compare that until now, but I really should have. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> wow. That really just... Thank you, Eddie. That really just hit me. Music um, Arcade bringing you Epiphany made episodes. There we go. So, um, God, this doesn't, I want to like this song. Cause like, I am a metalhead. I listen to a lot of heavy metal. I listen to a lot of female fronted heavy metal, but man, this song just doesn't connect with each other in any real way. It's got disparate elements from like three different genres of metal that don't connect meaningfully. Um, you have this like rhythm guitar line that's like, straight out of the Meshuggah wannabe playbook. Uh, we call that genre gent. Basically, it's sort of a math metal um, played about an octave lower than you think it really should be. That's not necessarily bad on its own, but this is a very kind of shallow version. Then you have this like lead guitar line that is actually pretty cool. That's very melodic death metal. It kind of reminds me of a band called Insomnium. But then you add those two lyrics... A vocal line sung by Christina V, who is not a metal singer, clearly, in the most generic sort of pop metal way, and while it's still a lot more energy than what her usual singing style is, it just feels so restrained. And it feels like, between these three elements, it's just pulling the song in all sorts of different directions. Um, I think she had more energy in uh, Dance Through the Danger from Shantae Halgini Ewo. I would Which I would believe that, but she's also like an awesome opener. Yeah, I yeah no I I think I agree with that. But the, another big difference is she's involved with the development of that game, whereas in this one she was clearly just uh clearly just a musician for hire. Yeah, um, I think it's uh worth just making an observation here, uh, since a lot of people who listen to us might not be that into metal. Uh, when you imagine gent, since it's very hard to explain for non-metal fans. Imagine more or less what uh, Mick Gordon does in Doom, except with not as many uh, industrial music elements. Industrial that's and very thrash. Close to he's, what got some, he's got some real thrash DNA in there, but yeah, no, that's that's pretty accurate. I don't know. So they're basically mixing that with pop metal and some symphonic death elements and. Not only does it not work, I really don't like the vocals. No, Christina V's vocals on this song just do not land at all, which is kind of a shame, because I do really like her normally, but this song just yeah. isn't her game. Um, the and I, title of the track, the very word alive, doesn't feel alive. It doesn't. It really doesn't. And it's it's really kind of a shame, because... Obviously, they've done hard rock and heavy metal tracks at Arknights before. We uh, we talked yeah. about King Mouse just last episode. That song's incredible. And I mentioned this a few times. Like, if they'd gone harder 
towards one of those three angles. If they'd gone a more melodic death metal direction in the way of the lead guitar line, this could have been really cool. If they'd done the ex exact opposite and gone more pop metal, it would have been probably really cool. Um, instead, as it stands, it just feels like a mess. It's just a mess of a song that just doesn't... It doesn't hit. I, it I doesn't wish it did. commit. It doesn't commit. It do that's the best way to put it. It doesn't commit. Um, as both a metalhead and just a, a scholar, I guess, of music and sound, it just... This feels like it was written by Focus Group by a focus group that doesn't understand music that well. That reminds me of a, a video. Uh, I, I didn't watch it. It just got recommended to me uh, once or twice. I can't remember the YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. But it was uh, about uh, corporations uh, coming up with songs. And the the thumbnail was uh, one of those... Synergize me some tunes. Exactly. The, the thumbnail was one of those generic... Uh, corporate meetings, people in suits and ties, and like one guy standing up saying, synergize me some tunes. Yeah, it got in my recommendations too. You know what this actually reminds me of now that you put it that way? Okay, so, uh, the only reason I know about this is because this is the thing that made me start to respect Miley Cyrus. Uh, so she was in an episode of Black Mirror where she actually played primarily a rocker and did a really good cover of Head Like a Hole by Nine Inch Nails. And then something about her being in a coma and then someone using, like, a thing to pull a song from her brain and they take that song and they run it through a, like, sa a music sanitizer program, for lack of a better term, to create a pop dance version of Head Like a Hole with the exact opposite message um, as sort of an anti-pop song. This kind of reminds me of what would happen if you take, like, a Meshuggah track and did that to this, but didn't do it the whole way. That it's a bit too close to home. Yeah. I don't know. I, I really wanted to talk about this one because usually Arknights, especially their, like, licensed tracks are usually really solid. Like, they had a track from Steve Aoki that's really good. They have, like... Uh, I think Operation Torfist is coming soon. On Global. I. Which one? Operation Torfist, the one with the Goshina trailer. Oh yeah, probably. Um, yeah, that's another one. Goshina, sure. Hire that guy. Uh, they have a uh a song by what's his name? Uh, Casey Lee Williams. Do I have that right? Who probably uh, yeah. Who has the uh, who has work on the uh, Ruby soundtrack? Like they're usually really good about licensed tracks. I really don't understand how this one ended up such a flop. Also, Casey Williams uh, sung uh, "Alive Very Loudly" in "Rules of Nature," I believe. Jeff Williams, Casey oh, no. Lee sings, is what I'm being told. What? What? I, they both worked on the track, so yes, those two. Oh, did I mix up with Casey Edwards? I may have. Truth. I'm afraid I don't know. Um, yeah. Either way, it just it just this this one just. I'm I'm angry at it. I'm angry at this song, and it's been bouncing around my head because I need to kind of like yell to the sky about this one because I am not used to Arknights dropping the ball this hard. <laughs> um, parts I of the song. The worst part. I think the worst part is that you're angry, but 
you're not angry because it's a horrible song. You're angry because it's a very uh song. It's average, it's boring. Okay. If it came up on my Spotify playlist, I would just, you know, let it play. I wouldn't like skip it or anything. There's certainly worse songs. But, but when contrasted with the rest of the game. Yeah, it's like the, the game is like banger after banger and every like all of their license tracks are so good and then there's this thing. And I'm just like where did you go wrong? And the fun part is, the funny part is, this song, or at least parts of it, without the vocals, actually plays during a couple of the stages during the Great Chief Returns event. And it's fine. It's inoffensive there. It works. It's not perfect, but it, it does the thing. I don't know. I, I just, I, I can't get behind it. And I hate dunking on Christina V like this, and I hate dunking on Arknights like this, but I've got to call this one out. Guys, what are you doing? I... I do really think that uh, listen to it what really breaks the song is the addition of the pop metal bit which mostly amounts to the singing so i can see it working uh, instrumental more or less still not amazing i don't think yeah but i can Im i can see why you would enjoy it uh, instrumental only well, enjoy might be a bit strong, but I definitely don't feel as negative about the instrumental version as I do the vocal version. Again, Christina V is just a really bad fit for this song. At least the way she's performing it, she probably... I mean, I've heard her do some yelling in Tales of Berseria, so it's entirely possible that if she went, like, harder on it, it might have been good, but as it as it currently sits, it just doesn't click. Might I don't know, there's a version to... of this song out there that works, and it kind of pisses me off that they somehow came so close and yet landed so far. Maybe she was directed to play a bit more of, of a, a pop metal sound because it's supposed to be a popular band or something, but it really didn't hit the... Yeah. It really hit correctly, I would say. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and that's that's the main comparison right there. As we keep talking about this, like this one song from Arknight just stands out as being a real flop compared to, I mean, even just the filler track that we started as the control group is still super serviceable and really fun. And this one is just. Let's talk about something else. I can't. I can't talk about this one anymore. So let's talk bravely default two recent game, very recent, this. and I've played it a lot. And it's been a fun time. And I'm so of looking course, forward to it. Sorry? I'm so looking forward to it. I need to play that. Oh, yeah. I shouldn't spoil anything much, by the way, so don't worry about it. Cool. Yeah, no, I, 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 from the song titles and from what I heard, it just seemed like it pretty... Seemed like it was basically the same vein as the first one, at least in terms yes. of, you know, what's going on. Yeah, there. it's... Yeah, I can imagine it's going to keep that pretense for a while before things go wherever they'll go. Wherever uh, they'll go. Which is, which is bound to be a fun time. But one of the things uh, you do uh, every now and then in this game is, of course, fight Asterisk Wielders, which is basically uh, people that have uh, these tiny trinkets that grants them the power of a classic JRPG class. And when you punch them hard enough, they give it to you. Yep. And they don't automatically die after that, which is a nice change. Uh, and so the way it's set up is very nice in particular because there's one track 
uh, that comes back during the conversation pre-boss fight. Uh, where there's this tension that builds with this very repetitive track because it can last uh, a very short time depending on how fast you're skipping the dialogues and the like. But it goes da 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 and it builds things like that, keeps you a little bit waiting, and then the fight starts. And there are several boss fight themes that can happen. But uh, the way, I mean, one of the things I want to put the spotlight on the most is the transition where it suddenly escalates when, while the fight is still kind of loading and uh, then it changes from that to the actual boss films and the transition from one to the other to the other is just uh, chef's kiss. I like it when a game is able to connect their songs like that. Um, Yeah. Anytime you get like a variable mix or something, something in that vein, I'm usually for it because it creates kind of a dynamic environment to the game that's kind of impossible in any other medium. If it's not interactive, it doesn't work. Exactly. And also, that's the way... How to say it? Uh, In a way, the more... A core of a track remains the same, the more you pay attention to the variation, which means the more the variation can be there for an identifiable purpose to you. Right. Like, uh, for this example, uh, the tagline between the main track uh, for the intro and the transition are essentially the same. But uh, the transition has these these uh, horns that take the forefront, and it goes from da 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 to da 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 da, and it's glorious like that. Like you know, when you hear like that, something like that, things are going to throw down, and you're going to someone is going to die. Not necessarily the enemy, because boy, are some of those bosses hard. <laughs> So yeah, I think that's a wonderful way to just go from the pace of a tense conversation to the pace of a combat. And uh, that's not the only thing uh, Bravely Default 2 brings up to the table uh, as a variation on a theme. Okay. Because there's also the world map themes. Uh, So... A bit of context on the position of things. When you go to the first area, uh, the first big... uh, Well, the world map is sectioned in part. I imagine that's going to be a bigger bigger world map when you'll get the airships you're inevitably going to get at some point. Yep. But uh, it starts sectioned and you start in Alciona, which is this... uh, Basically, the Plains Beginner JRPG area. And the world map has these wind instruments that carry the melody. Pretty peaceful, pretty nice. And then you get uh, a whole dungeon through a valley where some intense stuff happens. And you stay there a while. You fight some bosses and everything. And then you have this nice desert theme when you go on the other way of the valley and into 
another world map, well, another section of the world map. And uh, it's very much a Desert Theme Point MP3 as far as the instruments go. <laughs> like, no, I get exactly what you mean. Could, I, I do. Yeah, like, you it's got the Spanish guitar and the pan flute, on. yeah. You couldn't use this track for anything but a desert area. Right. Um, and uh, something I didn't notice, however, is that they're actually the same melody, which is only really noticeable when you go to the third area, which doesn't have a dungeon to transition between one area and the next. And so you get the music that changes immediately from the other, and it's the same track again, well, the same melody again, just with different instruments again, and a bit of a more melancholic or tragic uh, theme to the third one in particular, uh, which makes sense because there's a bit of nostalgia in here regarding some of the characters involved and the changes that happened to the area. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's just the same world map uh, with the same track, but with each of the instrument choices and di slight difference in tones, setting up the decor and showing that the regions have their own identity and very much their own importance. It's not just disparate villages, it's really regions and uh, the music really helps cement the identity of each of these areas. I appreciate that. I do. Honestly, that's, that's an idea that I think more games should uh, make use of. It's, it's very neat, and I don't really recall many games that have done something like that. Yeah, like thinking, for instance, on uh, Dragon Quest XI, uh, there's also a pretty wide uh, map, and uh, it feels way more like uh, yeah, a set of individual cities with some map stuff in between. Of course, Dragon Quest XI OSC had other problems in its original release, but that's neither here nor there. So yeah, use that contrast between the different songs and uh, using the different instruments in order to establish the identity. Contrast! Yay! I certainly appreciate this. Now then, let's move on to... A little bit of the divine, if you will, Eddie. So, welcome everyone to my TED talk. This might take a while. <laughs> I hope you're comfortable. Here we go. Uh, that may have been why I kept this section under check. Yeah, there's a reason this section is exactly in the middle of the podcast. Uh, so, the Divinity franchise of RPGs. Uh, more recently, it has become somewhat of a household name thanks to the uh, Divinity Original Sin subseries. Enough that they got trusted with Baldur's Gate 3, no less. Exactly. Uh, those games got huge off of Kickstarter, of all places, and then uh, they got the right to Baldur's Gate. Uh, 
So the series had some uh, early beginnings that really don't reflect what it's uh, it's become nowadays. Uh, the first game had the very awkward title of Divine Divinity, and yeah. it was it was sort of lost in between being a Diablo 2 clone and having some mechanics from old school uh, turn-based RPGs, though the combat wasn't turn-based. And it wasn't really being the best at either of them, from what little I've played. It's it's a fun experiment, but not something that sticks in your mind. Uh, but my first uh, interaction with the franchise was actually what is technically the third game, but it's titled Divinity 2, because there was Beyond Divinity, which was a standalone expansion to the first game. Boy, it's almost anyway. like we just talked about a game with all that almost exact uh, that almost exact scenario. Uh, isn't that right, Bravely Second? <laughs> That's something I, I kind of hate when devs do that, but anyway, Divinity 2. So, Divinity 2 was a game that I came across not because I knew the franchise or even knew very much about the gameplay or anything. Uh, back then, uh, Screw Attack was still a huge uh, video game website, and they did a preview of this game. And the game has this huge gimmick where after a certain point in the main storyline, you get the ability to become a dragon. And nice. So in, on foot... You are basically playing uh, an action RPG with the camera behind your back. And when you turn to a dragon, you are fighting against fortresses and other dragons. And when that happens, it basically becomes a shoot 'em up uh, just in 3D with a camera behind your character again. And not uh, a bullet hell. No, no, very much not. <laughs> uh, but while the, the gameplay did stick with me, uh, what stuck more was the soundtrack, and and to talk about the soundtrack, I need to set some things up first. Uh, the main composer for uh, Divinity 2, he actually worked on all games in the franchise, from the first Divinity game, all the way to when he uh, unfortunately passed away in 2015, meaning he worked until uh, the first Divinity original scene. Uh, I will butcher the pronunciation. I am, I'm just sure, uh, but I believe uh, he was called Kirill Pokrovsky or something along those I'd lines. I'd say that's a very good pronunciation. That sounded pretty close to my ears. Uh, thank you. Uh, he was was known Benada. for this this sort of uh, work where it's a mixture of. Classical and new age and neo folk sounds, but there's a little fun tidbit about him. He was a founding member of the band Aria. The band Aria was the first metal band to be so big that it got a, a attention outside of the Soviet Union. Right. And if you check Aria's first album, there's this instrumental intro to it which is very atmospheric, really sets the mood for uh, something epic but, epic but dark. And that's pretty much what uh, Ukrovsky did throughout his entire life, I would say, except outside of 
the metal genre, uh, genre he got more, in, more into classical and Divinity 2 has some tracks that vary a lot from some stuff that is not orchestrated because they couldn't afford an actual orchestra but it has some uh, synths that uh, mimic a lot of uh, string instruments uh, but that seems to be something he loved a lot particularly the, the strings and uh, some other tracks are very synth heavy with very uh, natural sound uh, the dungeon tracks are great examples of that and that was the way he composed for the entire franchise and the result at least in my opinion was that he managed to create a sort of soundscape that invokes uh, the idea of uh, folk music like uh, this, mu this music you're hearing feels like it belongs to a culture, it feels like it has history behind it, but it's all done in the name of a fictional culture. I don't think any of the, uh, his soundtracks were particularly based on existing cultures, I think it was entirely original, Okay. but I feel listening to it like represents uh, a bigger a bigger world it's uh, not to say that other uh, composers don't do things uh, similarly like uh, if I listen to Brad Derrick or Jeremy Soule's work I can definitely uh, imagine Tam Riel from Elder Scrolls uh, if I listen to a multitude of JRPG uh, soundtracks I can definitely picture those worlds but I think that a big difference is for most of them, I can pinpoint uh, cultures that they are basing, uh, right. basing their work on. Or, but for uh, Pokrovsky, it's, it's very hard for me to imagine a, a real-world culture that inspired him. Maybe they're going back home. But yeah, uh, two tracks that really come to my mind with the whole... He's creating an entire new culture with the music uh, to me mm -hmm. are the track Forest of Fairy Tales from uh, Divinity Original Sin. It, it's very folky, it has flutes in it. Uh, it sounds sounds almost like something you, you would, uh, almost something like uh, what you would hear Hobbits from uh, Middle Earth uh, sing and dance yeah too. as i've said uh, before the show it uh, gives me some final fantasy crystal chronicles vibe yeah also a good sign i would agree with that and yeah it definitely grabs that that identity and you can pinpoint it as both a folk track and a, a game track i would say and another track that really comes to my mind when i think of uh, pokrovsky's work was actually the title theme to Divinity 2, which I almost brought to our episode about introductions a few weeks ago, but I decided to hold off uh, for an opportunity like today. Well, now you have it. And very much so. And uh, I think that what strikes me the most about that track, uh, it's that the... The overall sound of it, 
that doesn't necessarily seem that unique. Um, I'd imagine having something too unique as the title theme maybe could get some people to not follow through and play the game. I don't know. But from time to time in that track, there's this strange sound very much in the background. Uh, I think it's just a synth. Uh, potentially a lot of uh, modulating going on. But the, the impression I get from that sound is that it's almost like a mythical creature uh, either in pain or purring which really fits with the game since the game is about dragons being hunted down and you become basically the last dragon knight and I I think that's the most sort of alien sound I've ever heard in a game soundtrack that fits uh, just as well. It almost sounds like a living being, but not a human is there. Huh. But I think it's entirely synth. I mean, the things you could do with oscillators are kind of amazing, but... Yeah. I have to admit, I have a hard time picturing dragons in danger, if only because my main contact with the Divinity franchise... Uh, since uh, even the original scene after that didn't really stick to me, was Dragon Commander, also composed by uh, Kirill Bokowski. And uh, in it, it's a strategy game, and except you also have a dragon with chi- three jet reactor on its back, and then you murder everybody, and it's awesome. That sounds real weird. Yeah, that it's, game was weird. It's a great game. I think they couldn't uh, flesh it out a little bit because they oh had yeah to no definitely resources. you can feel there wasn't the uh, original sin money behind it yet yeah but uh, conceptually being, it's really cool they were being co cool developed I think uh, there's a whole lore about why the dragons were uh, hunted down and how that happened but essentially that. Uh, Divinity 2 happens after they were hunted down, and there's only a couple left, and you basically gain the powers of one of them. So I sort of imagine uh, this this dragon, either uh, baby dragon purring, like how you're a new dragon, uh, in a certain way, or may be a, a dragon sort of in a cave, fleeing from the hunters and in pain so he's sort of it's sort of purring because of the pain uh that's that's kind of what i get from that scene in the background for the main theme which fits the themes of the the game very well but uh that all was uh pokorovsky's work so as i said in uh 2015 sadly uh pokorovsky passed away so First of all, Larian Studios had a rough time trying to find someone to replace him. And they ended up working with uh, Borislav Slavov. He is from uh, Bulgaria. I don't think any of his previous soundtracks are particularly memorable. I've never heard anyone talk about those soundtracks. Like his work in Crisis 2 and 3, uh, Rise, Son of Rome. Uh, two worlds, two, 
those were fine in my opinion not amazing but yeah they... a handful of those worlds are curse projects as, as i'm concerned like rise Oof. yeah the, the games themselves also weren't all that amazing so the games were kind of forgotten as well but he's uh he stated that uh Pokerovsky was a huge idol of his until he uh, started working in the industry a huge inspiration for working in the gaming industry even and i think with divinity original scene 2 which was his first game with Larian, and i think he really captured uh the spirit when he worked in original scene 2 uh it's really really unique compared to his earlier work it really sticks more in your mind uh it does feel different does feel like there's someone else in control but it does also feel like the correct uh, spiritual successor to Pokorovsky's work it retains that idea of being the soundtrack to a fictional culture that's not based on any specific real world culture in my opinion I'm not sure I agree this time I agreed with Pokorovsky's work, but hearing the tracks you've shared regarding the Divinity Original Sin 2, I get a much stronger Slavic influence in those some in that soundtrack. Yeah, I I can I can see that. I what I would say is that it it works as the soundtrack to a fictional universe, but it yes, does it show works, where he comes but from. But it sounds way more Slavic to me. It does certainly it's show where good. it comes from. It does definitely show that yes. that identity. And part of his... I think the contrast is interesting, in fact. I, I think that's, that's fair. And ironically, this soundtrack alone also has a lot of contrast within itself. Because when you're creating your character, you have to choose between... Four, instru- uh, four different musical instruments and whenever you do something special or you're in the middle of a certain story beat that really involves your character the music sort of mutates so to speak it adapts your instrument along with the main melody and the main instrumentation of the track and there's, there's a lot to be said about uh, how he managed to make all of that work mostly seamlessly, not 100%, but mostly within the gameplay. And the tracks don't really change all that much. Uh, there's two of them that are on the soundtrack album, where you get the track and the four versions of it with the character instruments. So he had that challenge along with the challenge of being the guy to replace Pokorovsky. So I think it must have been rough on the guy, <laughs> but he did an amazing job. I think it's his best work so far. And he is composing Baldur's Gate 3 as well. So fingers crossed, uh, I think he has a lot to show despite the rough beginnings. And if he continues to work with Latin Studios, I think I'm it, I'm sure that he will get to explore his uh, creative uh, jobs 
in the future. But it's certainly different from Pokorovsky, but I'd say equally as good, even if it's a bit less original. And that was my dad talk. That was... Thank you. Honestly fascinating. Yeah, I'm like, uh, big shoes to feeling uh, always uh, something that's uh, complicated, but keeping the spirit of uh, a series through a change of composer is something that, for that matter, Bravely Default had more trouble with. Yeah, carrying the torch is definitely no joke. So when you have a situation of, even compared within a series to a composer who's still somewhat actively working on the game, although not as much recently, obviously, uh, it uh, it comes up. And it, it... I find myself where my least favorite track of the next four was actually composed by the series original and, frankly one of the grandmasters of game music, Nobuo Ematsu. The first, like, regular dungeon theme in Final Fantasy XIV, I guess specifically starting at A Realm Report, because I think Legacy had a different one, is just not good. It's called A Promised Plunder, and it is generic, kind of boring, not really great ideas. I think it shows to me one thing in particular with Uematsu is that doesn't really seem to, I mean, in this attempt at least, to really click on the pace of battle that an MMORPG has, the way uh, other tracks of this game have, uh, and the way FF12 have. I'd agree, but I'd also disagree. This one song isn't good, but a lot of his other work for the game still holds up. Yeah, um, but that's a specifically a dungeon battle theme. Yes, that is true, and in this case it really didn't work. Um, it's kind of like, it's it's there. It's not a, it's kind of like my opinion of Alive. It's not offensive, Yeah. but yeah. it definitely doesn't land the way it should have and it really, like every time I get a sub-50 dungeon and have to listen to this song, I'm just groaning. Because it's like, oh, this track again. And there was a couple of songs that, like, most of the dungeons would actually play, like, about a minute of a snippet of music in the early game, and then cut it off so that the only thing you're hearing is this battle theme. And I'm just like, I don't yeah. agree with that at all. Probably should have just had dungeon music throughout, which they eventually did. Which was the correct choice. It was absolutely the correct choice. Um, the first one that really got to me... Um, really made me go, okay, they figured their dungeon stuff out, was a song called Slumber Eternal that plays on the Somal dungeon. And I'm like, it's simple, and it's variations on a theme, but it gets the blood pumping, it's got a really cool melody line to it, like, it plays throughout. It doesn't interrupt itself for generic battle music. It actually just keeps going. And that was the first time I really, one of the first times I really kind of stopped and went, oh, this track is actually, like, super legit. There were a couple of times in ARR where that happened, but once we get into Heavensward's where things really start getting interesting. And that was the first one that I really just sank my teeth into and really started listening critically. Uh, which, of course, follows up into the next, quote-unquote, generic 
uh, dungeon theme, which is the level 60 hard mode dungeons, which is called Quicksand. And there was a level 50 hard mode dungeon that was pretty good, but I like Quicksand a lot. Like, it's got this... It's got a real vibe to it. Um, Ironically, we're turning to some Al again, but this time in hard mode. Yes, a, and I remember the first time I heard this, and I'm like, why does some all of all places get all the bangers? It was technically a transition dungeon. It wasn't even that important, but it was getting the good music. I have a pretty similar experience, in fact, because thinking back on the original game's dungeon, none of the music really sticks because you don't hear it most of the time. Right, you're but hearing even in, Promise of Plunder. Yeah, exactly, but even in patches, they've solved it. And the first dungeon that had that sort of reaction with me was Sustasha Hard with Riptide. Which is this very bombastic pirate theme. And uh, yeah, it would have been a shame to interrupt that one, for sure. Yeah, uh, Keeper of the Lake is another one of those that I'm like, I like this one. But then Keeper of the Lake itself gets major points knocked off for sound design because of the second segment there's this alarm that just drives me crazy. <laughs> like it one is. of my favorite jokes was seeing a video on YouTube that's like a ASMR Gaulian alarm for 10 hours. God. The, that alarm reminds me of the Hitman 1 stage in Marrakesh, and you have the vendor going, Snail meat! Would you like snail meat? That song, sa <laughs> that alarm sounds like digitized someone calling out for snail meat. Snail meat? Exactly. Oh, God, it's awful. <laughs> I hear it. So, Keeper of the Lake, unfortunately, doesn't get my nod by comparison to Slumber Eternal. Entirely on the back of that alarm, because I don't want to go in there and listen to that. <laughs> I just want to say thank you for having the snail meat guy stuck in my head again. Sorry. I haven't played the game in ages, but now it's stuck again in my mind. Five years of therapy down the drain. And now you know how I feel whenever I'm in Keeper of the Lake. <laughs> <sighs> Moving but on yeah, to songs really I was actually up the dungeon thing. talking about. I'm sorry, what was that, Rena? Uh, I was just confirming that they've really stepped up the dungeon thing game. Oh, yeah. Starting in post- uh, 2.x patches. Yeah, once they got into the patchwork and started... Quicksand was 2.4, but maybe there was some before. I mean, at the very least, you had the 50 hard music, which even then was still a good sight better than the 50 normal. Yeah. Um. And then, yeah, skipping ahead a couple of expansions, let's go ahead and talk about Shadowbringers and that absolute monster of a soundtrack. And the opening oh, dungeon of that yeah. theme to Fire and Sword from Holminster Switch, and dang, that song just connects. It hits. It hits it's like, hard. Well, welcome to Shadowbringers, things just got real. And I say things so that I don't have to type uh, a content warning. an age rating, a content warning in the video description. Yeah, um, it's definitely up there in terms of dungeon intensity, and what's weird is that Canonically, it's the dungeon right after Gimlet Dark, which was also super intense, and blank just yeah. got real. Um, 
Though that song I don't remember the music of pretty much at all. This one I really remember. Uh, Holminster's just hits you with the guitars and the strings. Like, yeah, that's... It's heavy. It's heavy, and it fits the mood, and it just really, really works. And it's heavy in a way that still keeps with the heavenly motifs of what happens around with, in particular, the the piano part during what I qualify as the refrain. The dun, 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 dun. Fair which, enough. Which almost sounds jaunty in isolation. Yeah, but, but I mean, that yeah, section still has that rhythm guitar going, so you know there's it's yes. not like there's any... It's not like there's any um, distraction from the... Uh... No, that's not the word I was exactly. looking for. It, it's just that you're attacking beings of light. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's very easy to tell just how far the music has come when you compare Promise to Plunder to, to Fire and Sword. Because you have the opening, essentially the opening dungeon to ARR, which is really not good. And then the opening dungeon to Shadowbringers, which is super on point, super technical, very, very good. Doesn't interrupt itself with a bad battle theme. The progression there is just Imagine sort of... retrospectively how good some things like Hawk Manor would have been with today's music tendencies. Yeah. Like, Hawkmanor actually has a pretty solid dungeon track for the minute or so it plays before Promise of Plunder shows up to ruin yeah. the mood. Yeah, I, I mean... I don't know, it's just... It's just such a contrast. We keep talking about contrast, that's kind of the point. It's like it's the episode theme. Yeah, you'd think. Um, it almost feels like two different games, despite being a genuine progression from, from the original. So, yeah, I don't know. That's my take on FF14 and the dungeon themes. There was a lot that we could have talked about that we just don't have time for. I could probably get into a dissertation on every uh, expansion's music at this point, but... I was curious to hear if you had any thought in particular between... Uh, uh, even if you have to voice them quickly between Holdness and Switch and uh, the theme from uh, Heroes Gauntlet. Um, Heroes Gauntlet actually sounds a lot more assured as a song, which makes sense because by then you've gone through, you're heading towards the final boss of Shadowbringers, and instead of, um, well, the true final boss of Shadowbringers, let's put it that way, and instead of this, like, intense foreboding, you have a song that actually brings up kind of the determination aspect and kind of shows, okay, your character is about ready to bring the pain. Yes, he's, yes, they're going through some stuff, but... That stuff isn't necessarily more than they can handle. It's a very different yeah. animal. It's a real, real strong love letter to Shadowbringers as a whole and to the world that Shadowbringers takes place on. Um, Thinking back specifically on the contrast between the two tracks, one of the things I didn't really articulate before that is that the first, the very first few uh, notes of each track. Uh, Kind of show the path gone throughout. Like you start with Holmister's Switch, which that dun dun da da dun dun. Immediately you're getting right into it. You're getting your boots to the ground. You're opening up, and you're going to be there for a while. Yeah. And then 
to contrast, there's uh, the Heroes Gauntlet theme whose name, again, I forgot. Uh, the uh, Path Where All Roads Lead or something like that. Where All Roads Lead. Where All Roads Lead. But yeah. That's pretty much like a field theme, which makes sense because it's essentially one of the main ways uh, the game says goodbye to Shadowbringer. And uh, it's... It brings a little bit of melancholy because of the fact that it's the last dungeon for a while that's going to happen in this uh, region. Assuming Shadowbringers would finally give us some optional dungeons, that would be nice. Sorry. Yep. Sokken is a rapidly evolving beast, that's for sure. Oh yeah. I remember from a passage at uh, FanFest two years ago now, uh, that uh, we did have some preview for two tracks, uh, one which was deliberately altered, which was the expansion's main theme, but it didn't have the lyrics because the lyrics were spoilerific. Oh yeah. And so the instrumentalization, the instrumentalization was a little bit different as well, and it kind of felt and hit different. The way the trailer cut was cut also felt different as well as a matter of fact, but it was subtle and it shows that uh, uh, refining a tracks to the last moments really pays off. Yeah. And uh, he really does it to the last moment because apparently by the time we first hear it, uh, heard it at uh, FanFest, uh, Soken had finished and showed for the first time a track he finished like a week before. Which happened to be the main day theme of Rectica Greatfoot. Which is also kind of incredible, but not really in the scope of, uh... Not really yes. in the scope of the discussion today, but that is definitely a song I want to talk about at length later. Oh, yeah. But I was there for the first Lahi. Oh, wow. That's kind of That's gonna count for something. Yeah. I should get that printed on a t-shirt. Anyway. I was there for the verse, Lahi. I love that. I'll just nod my head and act like I understand the reference. Okay, let's talk about something you might actually understand. How about that? Rana, take it away. You're our final topic holder. Alright, so let's talk about uh, criminals punching each other. Yakuza like a dragon in... in Please don't ask too many questions about, about why Galen said I might understand a thing about that. Yeah, I don't know either, honestly. Especially this one, since it's the JRPG of the series. Uh, but, in particular, the track, the two tracks I wanted to talk about uh, very much loop back to tracks before, uh, because, well, first it's technically the same main theme but remix in two different ways because one of them is when you fight the protagonist of a few of the former games and the other is when you fight the other main protagonist of the games before. So two different protagonists, uh, the two that you end up playing in Yakuza 0 and the tones of these two encounters are very different and it shows in the mix of the song which is Receive You which is a bit of a main battle theme for uh, Kiryu 
the main protagonist of the Yakuza series. Right. And uh, it's very much it very much shows again the contrast and difference between these two characters you fight at two very different points in the game. Receive and turn you is uh, actually oh no. I was going to ask you which, uh, since you actually know uh, these two characters, which one do you feel uh, was uh, which? But it's actually written in the video. Yeah, title. You already marked that down, unfortunately. Yeah. So unfortunately, uh, that answer has been spoiled by interface, which is yeah. which happens. Yep, uh, but it should have been obvious even without that, because on one hand you have receive and turn you which is the one when you fight Goro Majima. And... Uh, basically... Okay. Tiny bit of spoiler. He doesn't even have anything against your character. He just wants to fight because you're there and you look tradable. That's on brand for him, let's be honest. Exactly. Uh, I was going to say, I haven't even played the game and I would say that sounds about right. Yeah. And uh, you fight a lot. He's actually one of the hardest boss uh, you encounter at this point in the game. Uh, and the first time I saw the game over screen. Oh dear. He is not joking around, but that makes, in a way, the fight... Uh, it's a payoff. It's awesome. It's you there, he's there, his free ninja doppelganger is there, his bro is there. Everybody is there, and it's just a million knockout, and you're going at it, and then, basically, I got my uh, behind handed to me, mm -hmm. as I've said, and then I spent two days doing side quests and arena grinds to get back to him, and during those two days, I had this track stuck in my head, uh, because it's just... I even started... Miss, miss hearing the lyrics, quote-unquote, well, the vocals more like, which, uh, and I don't know what I is supposed to say, but in my head it's go, showdown, camp, on and on again. As it gets uh, increasingly crazy, and uh, yeah, it's it delivers. So it's a fight that's really enjoyable and that you're meant to enjoy. And then, as the opposite of things you are meant to enjoy, stands Kiryu. <laughs> that says uh, a lot. I don't think... <laughs> Th that's a gratuitous dig. I don't even hate the guy, but he is a block of concrete with a pair of sunglasses. And uh, he... Uh, you encounter him in a way that's much more emotionally charged because uh, at this point your character ends up questioning a lot of what's happening and uh, he's trying to get answer but Kiryu is in the way mostly because he doesn't correspond to his unattainable standards of stoicism and uh, you get this fight against him as well, which is uh, very thematically themed to the very game, because uh, that's Yakuza like a dragon, and Kiryu is the dragon of Dojima, 
So there's definitely ties there. Yep. Uh, and uh, Ichiban is a bit of a Dragon Quest uh, and JRPG nerd in-universe, which means that this fight is the hero fighting the dragon to get to the treasure. And that's a very central point of the of the entire game, both plot-wise, thematic-wise. Uh, the entire chapter is uh, called Passing of the Torch. So there's the transition that could have worked there too. True. And, uh, and yeah, it's very much uh, a much more emotionally charged version of this theme, more somber. The fight is just as hard. Uh, differently hard, because uh, Kiryu doesn't have any AoE unlike uh, Majima and doesn't summon a thousand allies, uh, quote-unquote. But he is very focused on uh, doing one thing, which is making you fulfill your failed condition, which is having the protagonist faint. So hopefully uh, you have a good tank, is what I'm hearing. Hopefully you have a good main character. That too. Uh, Because... If your tank, I mean, the classes don't really allow it, but uh, if your tank is a female character, it wouldn't work, because Kiryu doesn't hit women. So he will change target systematically if one of your two potential female party members is in the way. Huh. And that's also why he doesn't have any AoE, and his counterattacks don't work when female characters attack him. That's also why Kiryu is not in any fighting game collaboration like a Tekken or a Smash or anything like that. That's actually the reason the producer have given. Okay. Assuming truth, that's a really cool way to tie together gameplay and storytelling. Yeah, exactly. I was pretty impressed by that. I suffered a lot because the two main party members meant that the two others were taking twice as many hits and he hits a lot uh, but uh, it, it's cool and that shows the intensity of the fight in uh, in I mean both the fight with the receive you versions are, are intense but in very different ways yeah which is how Majima and Kiryu are two very intense characters in very different ways. They are. And I think so that, that all makes sense. And I don't really the, like it when all makes sense. I, I think that came to my mind as you explained uh, why those tracks are like that. Uh, it's gonna sound like a very weird comparison, but uh, with Go the, on, I'm liking it already. Yeah. Uh, sure you do. Uh, the Majima theme, it's sort of, at least to me, it sounds like a similar dynamic to Pokemon Gold and Silver when you fight uh, Red at the end. Because the idea there isn't necessarily to say this character, this uh, person is absurdly strong. This character you just met is a huge uh, boss in your way. Uh, the idea is sort of to say, you are amazing, and this is your other amazing version. 
you are playing against yourself and both versions are awesome while yeah. the Kiryu theme is about the villain of your story rather than another you so that one is allowed to yeah, be more because it's because essentially Kiryu won't ever be a protagonist after this this time for reasons that make sense in the game and you will have to play to discover them which I recommend because that's a very good game that took a hundred hours of my time I do not regret. Yeah, I think I'm going to hit up uh, Kiwami 1 before that, but yes, I'm very much looking forward to getting to that one. I'm, I've been very yeah. pleased with what little of the Yakuza series I've seen, which is weird because I was very resistant to it at first, but... Some of the best five bucks you've spent. Really is. Uh, and yeah, we talked about We've talked about Yakuza 0 a couple times. That soundtrack is also quite excellent for a game that's an RPG, but with a beat-em-up battle system, which is just wonderful. That's kind of the one yeah. thing about Like a Dragon I'm kind of a little suspicious of, because it, because like the uh, Yakuza games that I've played and seen seem to be more like a really refined River City type of deal, where, yeah, it's an RPG, but your battle system is an active punching thing, and turning yeah. it into turn-based kind of makes me feel a little trepidatious there are definitely some parts where i was like i wish this was an action scene yeah so I believe in it particular is. one of those was triggered by the soundtrack but i don't really have a thing to contrast it with so i will not talk about it this time something but just crossed my fun. mind where go on you're, you're talking about this being mostly an action-based series suddenly having a uh, a more hardcore RPG entry, and we know Galen's feelings about Final Fantasy VII doing the exact opposite. My feelings have less to do with it doing the opposite and more about it doing the opposite very poorly. Yes, uh, but well, let me just put things this reflection. I would say. Also, like a dragon is the seventh entry, uh, main line entry in the series. Uh, well, not the seventh per se, but it is called Yakuza Seven in Japan. In Japan. Uh, anyway, the eighth in the series. Uh, well, there's also Ishin and Lost Souls, and I suppose the side game with uh, uh, can uh, could count as part of the series as well. But that's oh my word. You know. Uh, uh, yeah, what I was just going to say is that, um, it does, well, it's always did, uh, 3D action a bit clumsily act part with things like the enemies blocking mid-combo randomly for no apparent reason. And it does JRPG with a similar level of clumsiness at times. Anyway, let's not talk about the OST at all. <laughs> we have gotten well, kind of sidetracked. And um, my subject, uh, well, my talking points are pretty much over, so I believe we can slowly move on to the conclusion. I think that is a fine idea by me. Obviously, times change. Times change, and so with it does the music. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. 
we always have something to look forward to, and here's to looking forward to 2021 bringing us some positivity for once. Y'all are wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll be back next time for more of the Music Arcade Podcast, where we talk about just the great music and the wonderful world out there. Thank you so much. See ya. See ya next time.